right. Welcome to Big Tent USA, where we put democracy above partisanship through education, civic engagement, and activism. In 2024, we'll be focusing like a laser beam on three issues, democracy, women's reproductive rights, and our children and grandchildren's future. It is such a privilege for me to welcome Judge J. Michael Ludig and the Brennan Center's president and CEO, Michael Waldman to Big Tent. Judge Ludig served on the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fourth Circuit for 15 years from 1991 to 2006. He was appointed to the federal bench by, George, by President George H.W. Bush and served as Assistant Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice and Counselor to the Attorney General of the United States. Among his many other credentials, Judge Ludig served in the Reagan White House and was law clerk to then Judge Antonin Scalia of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And famously, in January of 2021, Judge Ludig became a Twitter user. More on that later on. Michael Waldman is the president and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice of the New York, New York University School of Law. He was director of speech writing for President Bill Clinton and is the author of the Second Amendment, a biography, and the supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Judge Ludig, Michael, welcome to Big Tent. Thank you so much. And I will let you take the conversation from here. Thank you so much, Kitty. Uh, and welcome to everybody who is part of the Big Tent community. It is one of the signs of hope, I think, in our country, how many people are rallying to the cause of democracy. It really is a democracy movement that is broad and deep and diverse and across party and ideological lines. Uh, and uh, active citizens like all of you are really central to that. And we're we're really delighted to be part of this conversation. I think uh, I, I, I at least can't promise that we'll be as lively as James Carville and Sarah Longwell, but we will we will do our very best. Um, it's it's such an extraordinary privilege for me to be in this conversation with Judge Ludig. I, I know I speak for so many people across this country uh, in saying thank you to him for his voice, his courage, uh, and the significance uh, that it it reflected when he spoke out at the January 6th committee hearings and in, and in the course of uh, real time when uh, Donald Trump was trying to block the peaceful transfer of power. Um, and he's been a great public voice for the rule of law, as we're going to hear about. Uh, as a lot of you all know, um, there's a lot happening in the courts and at the Supreme Court this year around, uh, around elections, around democracy, and really for the first time around Donald Trump's efforts, uh, I would argue, to subvert our democracy. The Supreme Court has been pretty good in the past about staying out of these issues. It certainly stayed out of a number of these cases in 2020, uh, but it does seem as if it has no choice this time but to get involved. And on February 8th, the court will hear a challenge to the ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court, which probably everybody's familiar with, uh, which said that the 14th Amendment, in a provision that for many years had been little remembered, said that if you engaged in an insurrection and that you uh, had taken an oath as an officer of the United States, you could not serve in public office. Um, that sounds like someone we know. Um, and uh, this is a big, big ruling, uh, and they're going to be hearing arguments 
on February 8th, and they're hearing from the friend of the court briefs, the amicus briefs, which serve as such an important Greek chorus in these cases, uh, bringing in historical and legal perspective, one of which was just filed by Judge Ludig. So Judge Ludig, um, I, I offered the other day to hold your coat on this. Your expertise on this is really quite deep. Tell us why you filed this brief and what it said and what you think the, the Constitution says. Uh, thank you, Michael, and thank you, Kitty and Big Ten. It's 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 really a, my pleasure to be on uh, on your broadcast uh, uh, today, uh, Michael. Uh, a number of my uh, colleagues, former uh, Republican officials in six prior Republican administrations, uh, did, as you said, uh, filed a, an amicus brief in the Supreme Court. Uh, yesterday afternoon on uh, on the disqualification uh, question uh, of the former president that's now pending before the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, some of us that filed that brief have, have long believed that uh, that the single best argument that the former president is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is that he engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States uh, when, on January 6, 2021, uh, he attempted to uh, remain in power beyond his uh, constitutional term of four years, uh, and uh, prevented uh, on that day the the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in American history. Uh, there is a lot packed into that that one statement, uh, all of which we explain in the brief that we we filed last night. But to begin uh, this conversation, uh, I, I would point out to your listeners and viewers that uh, the 14th Amendment disqualifies uh, a person uh, who engages in an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution. That is, by its terms, uh, Section 3 does not disqualify one who engages in an insurrection or rebellion against the United States or the authority of the United States. Uh, it was many, many months ago that uh, the, the legendary Harvard professor, uh, Lawrence Tribe and I uh, wrote uh, an article in The Atlantic uh, explaining uh, that, and also uh, that the former president is disqualified uh, under section three from holding the uh, office of the presidency uh, in the in the future. It, it's uh, it, it's such a an interesting history lesson, and uh, for all of us, one of the uh, one of the briefs that was filed that is worth reading, even just as a matter of of uh, narrative history, uh, was filed by Akhil Amar and his brother Vikram Amar, both law professors, pointing out that like so many parts of the Constitution, there was some sort of specific stuff that this provision of this amendment was responding to. Uh, 
And it was not only the insurrection that we know of from the firing on Fort Sumter and the Civil War, but also the conduct of high officials a few months before, including President Buchanan's Secretary of War, who, having sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, basically allowed the weapons of the U.S. Army to be distributed to the Confederates in the in all and the and the property in all the southern states. In other words, that that the insurrection didn't necessarily have to involve bursting in through the glass doors, or or firing a gun, uh, if you were somebody who had upheld who had an oath. Um, and and it was it it was really it was pretty it was pretty interesting. What do you say to? people, and I I will confess this has often been how I have felt about this, who, who that Donald Trump is guilty of having engaged in an insurrection against the Constitution. And if there's an outcome here where the court, Supreme Court says, uh, oh, well, he didn't, that would just be a terrible outcome, though I don't expect that. Um, he, he, he Clearly, there was an insurrection. Clearly, he engaged in it. Clearly, he was an officer of the United States, even though you could read that provision and wonder why the president is not specifically mentioned. But the, the, there certainly was plenty of contemporary commentary by the sponsors of the 14th Amendment indicating they met people like the president. But that the decision about this whole matter, which is such a, in a sense, a new thing, has not been used for so long, that it ultimately is troubling if it's made by election officials, as in Maine, or a court in a state, as opposed to what happened with the Civil War, where there was a, a congressional declaration of insurrection. How do you, this is the question of, is it self-executing? Um, how do you respond to that? Because that seemed has seemed to me uh, it, to be the biggest challenge. And Lawrence Tribe, I believe at least at some points, has, has raised this as well. Uh, Michael, those are uh, all good questions. L let me begin to answer them, though, first by, by returning to your earlier uh, observation about uh, Akil and, and Vic Amar. Uh, uh, professors uh, um, Amar <laughs> uh, are uh, two of, of the, the, the finest constitutional minds in the country today. Uh, and 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 yes, as you pointed out, uh, they have explained to the Supreme Court not not only uh, that uh, what the former president did on January six uh, constituted an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States, as that term was understood uh, at the time of the, uh, the the framing and ratification uh, of the 14th Amendment. Um, but as importantly, uh, some of the 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 uh, the, the greatest uh, uh, historians in 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 the nation today have filed brief briefs uh, making the historical point that that what the president former president did in and around January 6 was the equivalent of in what was regarded as insurrections or rebellions against the constitution 
at the time of the framing of the 14th Amendment. So, for instance, uh, in our brief, you know, we're, we're not historians and we don't pretend to be, but, but we did cite uh, one example that the historians and, and professors have, have cited in their briefs, and that is uh, the uh, South Carolina's secession from, from the Union. Uh, uh, you know, in in the uh, uh, in the wake of the Civil War, that that was um, what, what we explained in our brief was that uh, that was an effort to deny uh, President Lincoln uh, his uh, powers under the Constitution to govern the entire uh, the only South Carolina. Okay. Whereas, in contrast, the former president's efforts on uh, uh, on January six uh, were uh, aimed at denying uh, uh, the the then elected, newly elected president Joe Biden his power to govern the entire nation. Uh, the word we chose to, to, to contrast those two uh, was that uh, the former president's efforts were broader uh, in their impact on the Constitution than were the, the, the efforts of South Carolina to secede, secede from the Union. Uh, but then uh, turning to, to, to your, your larger questions, uh, first, uh, what what we all need to understand is that the disqualification uh, uh, that's provided for under Section 3 is not anti-democratic. It's precisely the opposite. It is one of, if not the single most pro-democracy provisions in our Constitution. What the Constitution tells us, rather, is that it is the conduct that gives rise to disqualification, an insurrection or rebellion against the United States Constitution that is anti-democratic. Um, that's just... Uh, that's just not e even a question. There are many, uh, as you know, and, and your listeners know, there are many uh, provisions in a constitution that, that one could deem to be anti-democratic. It, it, it is the constitution that uh, prevents all of that, uh, that anti-democratic behavior, such as, for example, the electoral, electoral college. There, there. People have long thought of that, uh, the electoral college, as, as anti-democratic, and and under the de one definition of democracy, that it, it it is. Uh, so, in the Fourteenth Amendment, it's the American people, through their constitution, uh, who have uh, the, uh, who have withdrawn, if you will the decision to return a the former president to to the white house uh if he indeed engaged in insurrection 
against the, the Constitution of the United States. This is not as the the the, the political people in our in our country uh, ha have said. Uh, this is not Joe Biden. It, it's not the Democratic Party. Uh, it it's it's really it's really us, the American people, through our Constitution, who have withdrawn this question from public from public decision. Uh, it's an interesting point that I that I think a lot of folks would not who are not marinated in these legal questions might not catch that the the most prominent argument for this before this case was actually made by some very conservative scholars, uh, William Bodie, and a, a lot of the people who are most vocal in support of this disqualification are in fact. Um, folks like yourself from the conservative legal movement. Uh, uh, and in a sense, the the strongest argument is is what we would call an originalist or a textualist argument. Um, and, and, the, and the argument, in a sense, on the other side is a sort of, well, you know, it's just too much. <laughs> it's It would be too intrusive uh, an act by the court to do this. And, and in a sense, the kind of thing that would have been derided as living constitutionalism or or something like that or or at least uh, an artic an aspect of judicial restraint that justice thomas for example when faced with a choice between what he understands the original intent of something to be and uh, current practice he's he's always felt it proper to um to rely on on what he sees as the original public meaning um let's play play prognosticator for a little bit, because I do think that it would be a really big deal <laughs> for the Supreme Court to to bar uh, to to recognize this provision of the Constitution as being appropriately um, appropriately used by the Colorado Court. Uh, and I want to just see what you think of the kind of alternate scenarios of of Colorado being upheld or Trump winning. And then I want to talk before we have time for questions about the insurrection, the um, the other big case in front of the Supreme Court, uh, or not yet in front of the Supreme Court, but but in the courts as the web of accountability closes in on Donald Trump, which is the Jack, the Jack Smith prosecution uh, for the uh, federal criminal trial, which uh, is a, which is another federal case. How would it work? What would happen if the Supreme Court actually did? Just say Colorado is correct, um, and maybe not just this is okay for Colorado, but he is in fact uh, uh, disqualified. Well, M Michael, the Constitution uh, is neither conservative nor liberal; it's the Constitution of the United States, and and as you said, it, it was it was really Professors Bode and Paulson uh, who. Uh, began this conversation that, that, that has now led to a, a decision by the Supreme Court of the United States. They are, as you said, uh, regarded as conservative uh, 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 jurisprudence or, 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 or interpreters of the Constitution. And, 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 and as you said, it's their analysis that was grounded in, in the uh, uh, philosophy of interpretation known as originalism. Uh, so th that is uh, the kind of analysis that ought to appeal most to this Supreme Court, uh, a, a majority of whom ha have uh, 
proclaimed themselves originalist in their interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, would, would it be a big deal um, uh, were the Supreme Court to, to uh, uh, disqualify the former president under, under the 14th Amendment? Yes, <laughs> but no, in this sense that it would be a big deal if the Supreme Court were to uh, qualify the president contrary to the Constitution's command, in my view, that he be disqualified because of his insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution. Well, one, one other question, your embedded question of yours that I, I want to address um, before we move on, and that is that uh, what's, what's been known as the self-executing feature of, of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, uh, it is self-executing, which which means uh, uh, nothing but that the fact that Congress does not have to uh, to act in any way whatsoever in order for the, the former president to be disqualified un under Section 3. And what we've explained, I, I think, uh, for the first time in any of the briefs to the Supreme Court, is that the question of the disqualification uh, of any person, including uh, uh, the former president of the United States is, per the Constitution, a judicial determination. That is, the Constitution uh, vests uh, the, the the judiciary, fate, uh, federal and state, in this instance, uh, with the power to determine. Uh, uh, the 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 qualification of the former president to to hold uh, the presidency again in 2024. That that's probably sounds like a very technical uh, uh, point to be made, but it is anything but technical. That is the fact, constitutional fact, among others, by the way, that confirm that that uh, Section Three is is self self executing. Um, let's turn to the other big case. And I will say, and we can talk about this more in the in the discussion with uh, big tent participants. Uh, you know, one one concern that I think I have is that if, in fact, the Supreme Court does not disqualify, excuse me, if the Supreme Court rules, yeah, for Trump, um, and I think as a political matter, there's certainly a high chance of that. How... Uh, he, he had been 0 and 63 in cases in 2020 trying to uphold his false claims. He will be loud in proclaiming himself vindicated. Um, I think whatever the Supreme Court does, it's really important that they not say, oh, well, he didn't engage in an insurrection, so that's that's why, or he's not an officer. Um, but uh, uh, I think that uh, as we think about this, we need to map out a response should the ruling come out differently from the way Judge Ludig is uh, is urging, because uh, it's all part of a kind of a, a, a symphonic uh, cacophony of cases that Trump is 
trying to use for his own benefit, but also that uh, is gripping the public's attention. And I do think will have an impact on his standing eventually. Um, I want to ask about the other big case. We've talked about this before. As as viewers know, um, there is a federal prosecution by the special counsel, Jack Smith, due to go on trial starting March 4th. That was the original start date of the trial. A very tightly drawn, powerful indictment. Uh, former President Trump has claimed and has gone to court to say that he is immune from this prosecution because it took because the events took place while he was president. Um, it's basically an easy case. It is a legally easy case. Uh, it has been assumed for at least a half century or more that former presidents could be prosecuted, even at the same time that current presidents probably could not be. When Gerald Ford um, pardoned Richard Nixon, his pardon said, well, you know, he's about to be indicted and go on trial, and this would be terrible for the country, so therefore I'm going to issue this pardon. And in accepting the pardon, Nixon <laughs> Nixon didn't have any problem with that argument. Um, the president for whom I work, Bill Clinton, was investigated after he left office by federal prosecutors for pardons he issued as president. He was cleared, but anyway, people didn't say, oh, well, he's immune and it's not, you know, it's not something he could be investigated for. Um as uh, Mitch McConnell said, when explaining why he voted against conviction in the second impeachment of Donald Trump, said, well, we all know that there's a criminal process that can take place and that we, in effect, expect to take place. This is a legally easy question, but it is a question of first impression in some ways as well, because um, no former president has ever been indicted uh, or even seriously investigated in this way. Um, and so the courts are weighing in on this. There was an argument made at the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It was a striking argument. I encourage people to listen to the tape if you, if you have a chance. Uh, former president's lawyer was asked, well, could he order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate his political opponents? And the answer was, and without investigation, and the answer was, Unless he'd been convicted by the Senate in an impeachment, first impeached and then convicted, maybe by the very people who would be fearing assassination, um, then he could not be. It was kind of one of those defining kind of crazy moments in a courtroom. I'm sure we'll hear about it in the ruling. Um, the, 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 the question here is timing. Um, the later this all goes, the more that case is going to be thrust into the center of the presidential race. Uh, and so I have a question for you, Judge. Does it worry you that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is taking what seems to be taking its time? I think you're less worried than I am, but you know more. Um, and what do we expect to happen in the Supreme Court on that case? Well, Michael, I'm, I, I'm not worried, and I'm certainly not overly worried at, at this point. Uh, the judicial process and, and, and the wheels of justice uh, turn very slowly. Uh, and that's uh, because uh, there's so much at stake. And when the judiciary speaks, it gets it right because it understands that that is the law of, of the land. Uh, no president uh, is immune from prosecution uh, for acts conducted uh, uh, during his presidency. 
provided that he's prosecuted after the time that he was president of the United States. And no court uh, in the land will ever hold that, a, uh, that the former president is immune from prosecution for the, uh, his, his conduct in and around January 6th. Uh, my colleagues and I uh, actually filed a brief on the immunity question, both in the district court and then subsequently in, in, in the, uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, uh, making the equivalent argument there that we've now made in the Supreme Court with respect to the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, namely that a former president is never immune from prosecution, but the one instance in which he will <clears throat> never be immune is for his violation of the uh, uh, executive vesting clause and the 12th and 20th uh, uh, Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, which is what he violated on January 6th. So I'm not worried in the slightest. Uh, I, in fact, I believe uh, that we we can expect a decision from the D.C. Circuit any day, and uh, and then uh, uh, of course I have no better idea than anyone else. But provided the the, the D.C. Circuit holds that the president is not immune, uh, I would expect the Supreme Court of the United States to deny uh, certiorari on that question, so that the trial may proceed uh, within a month or so of, of its uh, uh, March 4th uh, scheduled date, uh, if not uh, less than that. That would be striking if they resisted the temptation to make a grand pronouncement on this uh, in the manner you describe. Uh, you know, I do think it's really important that when the D.C. Circuit opinion comes out, assuming it comes out the way I think we all assume it will, that all of all of us who care about democracy, not simply uh, pocket the win. Uh, this will be one of the most significant rulings on presidential accountability in American history. Um, uh, and uh, I have a feeling it will be well argued. And uh, it's important that the media and those of us who care about this stuff not simply say, well, now on to the Supreme Court. Um, it, it's extraordinarily important that we draw attention to this, especially given the question marks about all these other things. Um, and so I'm encouraging everybody to pay close attention and use your platforms, use your social media platforms. Everybody on this call has has a bigger megaphone than anyone in an earlier generation to let the world know how important this is. I believe, Kitty, that you are uh, with us and have some questions from the audience. Yes. Great. Thank you so much for that discussion. I mean, my head is spinning, but that's okay because there's a lot to process. Um, I do want to pull back. There are some questions um, about the federal court system in general, so maybe we can um, maybe we can take a, a a look at sort of what's been going on around the federal judiciary, uh, particularly some of the Trump appointed justices, uh, judges, sorry, federal judges, and. Um, and also want to take a look at this struggle between the Tex between Texas, a state, and uh, SCOTUS, the federal government. 
um, at the border and what you sort of see playing out. So Judge, um, first of all, what has what has sort of disturbed you or um, made you feel, you know, um, strengthened by what you're seeing some of these Trump appointed judges decide? Um, some seem, in my opinion, very extreme and some seem um, to uh, uphold the Constitution. So what have you seen um, in these last few years? Well, I've, I've, I've not seen that kind of di dichotomy, uh, Kitty, at, at okay. all. Um, first off, uh, we, we all have to understand that, that there's a, a three tiers within the federal judiciary, uh, the, the district courts, the courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court of the United States. So before anyone can can hastily claim that the federal courts uh, are not enforcing the Constitution of the United States, uh, you know, at least uh, you have to have the final decision on that matter from the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, more specifically, um, I suspect that 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 some of the the decisions that you're referencing are decisions by the federal district courts. Uh, okay. and, yes. and in particular, the, 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 uh, a decision by a federal district court is, you know, is um, it, uh, temporary only, uh, pending its appeal to the United States Court of, court of Appeals, the relevant court, court of appeals. So, so I have said with respect to some of those, district court decisions that I suspect you're referencing that the, the the check and balance, if you will, within the federal judiciary is the appellate process, uh, including specifically in this instance, the courts of appeals. So until or unless we have a decision on a fundamental matter from a court of appeals, uh, in from my perspective, it, it's it's uh, it's uh, un, un, premature. It's premature even to talk about the a decision of the federal courts as a whole. Okay, that's helpful. Um, Michael, do you want to talk to us a little bit about this sort of what we see as a struggle right now going on in Texas? Well, what you're seeing, first of all, is a response to a real genuine factual uh, challenge at the border of of so many migrants coming to the country. Uh, so much difficulty in keeping control of the border, um, challenges for cities and states all over the country in absorbing uh, these migrants, and uh, the need for a modernized uh, and updated asylum law and uh, immigration law, which, as we've seen even just in recent days, is stymied by the political paralysis and polarization in Washington. Um, the last time the federal immigration laws were significantly updated uh ronald reagan was i believe in his first term um and uh th that is what the underlying fundamental challenge um what you're seeing is increasing uh audacity on the part of states and governors especially such as texas uh in uh challenging the the primacy of the federal government in these matters and and uh there there's a provision of the constitution the supremacy clause the clause that makes it clear that on matters where the federal government has 
uh, enacted laws like immigration, the federal government is is dominant. Uh, what's happened is they put up their own fence, and uh, it's it's a a very open challenge both to the courts uh, and to the executive branch. And four of the justices on the Supreme Court um, seemed, in effect, to side with what Texas was doing. I would say this is an interesting and unnerving moment in in a broader way. Um, I, I have a, um, a, a, you know, not surprisingly, perhaps a far more critical view of the federal courts right now than, than Judge Ludig does. I think on a number of different issues that the, that, uh, the Supreme Court and lower court judges, too, especially, have really veered uh, in a direction that I think is a misreading of how the Constitution should be interpreted. Um, the consequence of this is that you're seeing really in a lot of places almost two social systems rising up, and you're seeing states, in effect, challenging uh, national norms in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Before the Dobbs case, Texas, uh, in effect, passed a law that banned abortion in Texas before the Dobbs ruling, which which overturned uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey about a year before. And it was a pretty um, unambiguous action by Texas. I think you're seeing this a lot. And I think that, unfortunately, you can see the the the, the connective tissue around the country um, fray in this way because you're going to have the evolution of almost two different social systems and political systems depending on who has political power in a state. So I think that that is one of the things to worry about. And while it's true that the Supreme Court has – for example, the Fifth Circuit is the appeals court in, uh, in Texas and Louisiana, and actually has uh, the Supreme Court, this Supreme Court has overturned, has rejected the views of the Fifth Circuit repeatedly in the past year, um, when the Fifth Circuit has been more extreme. Um, but the, the rulings by lower court judges can often have a significant and chilling effect uh, in a lot of these cases in the meantime. Kitty, the oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Jessica. Michael is 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 correct in 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 his uh, description and characterization of what what's going on today in 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 the federal courts. Um, I would just make the point that that Michael will, will would of course agree with me on that that um, all constitutional history is made up of of uh, testing and challenges challenges. Uh, to uh, government conduct, uh, and and of course, some of the greatest constitutional decisions uh, in our history uh, arose from that kind of testiness, if you will, of government action. Uh, and foremost among those, of course, is is uh, the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, uh, but. That said, uh, I, I would not uh, want to be uh, arguing on behalf of the states like Texas that are challenging the federal government's uh, uh, authority over the uh, over the boundaries of the United States of America. That's an uphill battle. That's not to say that that, that they they will not win it. I don't know enough about the the, the issues to say, um, but. It's just to say nothing more than what I said. I, that's I would not want to be arguing the state of Texas's side of that case in, in the Supreme Court of the United States. 
And interestingly, you know, uh, the Solicitor General during uh, during the Dobbs case and the Texas uh, abortion case, rather, said, well, look, you know, why won't more progressive states, blue, blue states issue gun laws that violate the Supreme Court's reading of the Second Amendment under the, sa under the same principle and premise? So I think you may see more of that kind of thing happening uh, all around the country. Can you um, both, uh, obviously we're focused like a laser beam on the immunity question on the Colorado case. Um, can you tell us what else, what other cases at the Supreme Court they're going to decide on so many things that will affect so all Americans? Um, what should we be looking out for um, at the end of the term that maybe we're not focused on? Judge, oh, do you want to start? Yeah. I, I think yeah. that, that probably the so-called blockbuster case of, of this coming term uh, other than the the 14th Amendment case and possibly the immunity case uh, is the 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 question uh, whether the court should overrule the Chevron case uh, that's that's a very technical thing I'm, I think that for, for your listeners I would just say that Chevron for uh, almost half a century has, uh, uh, demanded uh, that the federal courts defer to uh, the interpretation of, of, of federal statutes uh, by the, the uh, agencies uh, of, of the federal government. Uh, the, there's no question that, that some number of the Supreme Court uh, today uh, believe that um, Chevron has... Uh, outlived it, its 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 life and 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 thus the question is uh whether to overrule chevron and replace it with uh, uh a tighter standard uh under which uh the agencies would have uh far less latitude in the interpretation of federal statutes than they have today and, and this case is significant in its own terms it's the mo chevron is the most cited case uh, in the federal courts and by uh, and by the Supreme Court over many years, it was actually a very favorite doctrine of Justice Scalia um, before he passed away. Um, but it also comes as part of a broader set of challenges to the power of regulatory agencies, especially those agencies that protect the environment, worker safety, and things of that nature. There was a case from two years ago that I, I write about in, in my book, The Supermajority, um, West Virginia versus EPA. And that that case, it's one of these very complicated cases tangled up uh, about a regulation that had already been never went into effect. But what was significant about that case, it was a climate change case. And in that case, the Supreme Court said basically that even if a statute properly can be read to give an agency the power to do the thing it wants to do, if it's too big a deal it really has to be something that Congress, the elected branch of government, does. It's called the Major Questions Doctrine. It was the first time, as Elena Kagan pointed out in her dissent, that phrase, the Major Questions Doctrine, had ever been articulated by the Supreme Court. The combination of those two cases, assuming the judge is right about how uh, how the Chevron Doctrine case, which is called Loper-Bright, will come out, is a significant curtailing, potentially, of the authority of federal agencies, regulatory agencies, to do what they do. Um, 
and some of the power will be taken in effect by judges who will decide whether something is a major question or not. Um, putatively, the power is being given back to Congress, but since Congress has a hard time acting or has already passed the laws that authorize the agencies to do this stuff, um, it really ultimately winds up curbing, uh, in, in realistic terms, the, the activism of the agencies. So it's going to be a big deal. And you're right, it's technical and um, it's not as vivid as an abortion case or a gun case or a Donald Trump case. You know, Kitty, the uh, the the major questions doctrine was uh, the Supreme Court just created created that out of whole cloth. Um, there's there's no argument that it did anything but that. We will keep that at the top of the list. Um, quick question, gentlemen, and then I I have a magic wand question for you. Did Clarence Thomas recuse himself from the Colorado case? Do we know? Not to my knowledge. Okay. There's uh, the only recent case uh, that where the Supreme Court did anything was uh, in their decision not to take an expedited appeal of okay. the uh, of the immunity case, and there was no reason to think from what we saw that uh, Justice Thomas recused himself. Okay. All right. I, there, there are a lot of questions about that, so I wanted to get to that. Okay. Lots of concern, obviously, about a Trump 2.0, about the plans that are very sophisticated, very detailed about what would happen to the federal government, um, checks and balances, will they hold? So I'm just going to ask you to wave your magic wand. You don't have to go through Congress or anything, but if you could change one thing about the Constitution to protect us from Trump 2.0, what would it be? This is a very unfair question. I didn't tell you I was going to ask you, but I'd be really interested to hear your uh, response. Well, Kitty, the, the, it has been famously said uh, by former justices of the Supreme Court of the United States that, that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Uh, and indeed, it's not. Uh, and uh, it actually uh, has uh, within its four corners um several provisions uh that were designed to protect uh america uh from an assault on her democracy uh and all that all that needs to be done is for america through the supreme court of the united states to enforce those provisions of of, of the existing constitution i agree emphatically that the constitution is fine uh and doesn't need to be changed i think that there are steps congress can and should take uh to live up to its role to defend checks and balances uh, it should have in my view convicted uh, the former president uh in his impeachment on these matters um we now know that he wants to use the insurrection act uh perhaps to take uh, military action against protesters. Uh, and when you look at it, it turns out the Insurrection Act has few limits on the president's ability to do that. That can be changed by Congress. Um, there are steps Congress can take to protect the independence of the Justice Department um, and other things like that, where uh, the Constitution is just fine. Congress needs to act. Um, and the Brennan Center, uh, which which I lead, is, is actually even as we focus, as everybody does, 
on the the extraordinary need to protect free and fair elections in 2024, we're also looking at 2025 and beyond to make sure that Donald Trump or any other president doesn't abuse their power and respects the checks and balances. And we've got a lot of work on ongoing about that too. Kitty, the uh, the uh, it it is um, partisan politics and partisan politicians that are destroying America today. So well said, Judge. Um, and, and for the last few minutes of this call, I, I do want to say, Judge Ludig, that there's been so many comments in the chat thanking you for the stands that you have been taking, your courage, um, just, just really entering into the fray um, of what uh, this, <laughs> this time requires. And so few people are doing that. So I'd love to have you take us back because it seems to have started in early January of 2021. Could you just tell us briefly the story of um, how you became a Twitter user and why you continue to be uh, a Twitter user and such a force for democracy? And, and, uh, and thank you so much for what you do. Well, in, in brief, Kitty, uh, first, I, 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 it's I who, who thanks your, your listeners, okay? Uh, I'm doing all of this for them and the many, many, many millions of Americans uh, who are not in a position to, to speak out. Uh, but uh, it all began on uh, January 6, 2021, when uh, the uh, counsel to, to then uh, uh, Vice President Pence, a longtime friend of mine, Richard Cullen uh, asked me to to get my voice out across the country as to uh, uh, the, uh, the the power of the vice president to, to overturn uh, the election uh, on that day, and um, that that led to uh, one of the first tweets that I had ever done, uh, and and I didn't even know how to do the tweet on that day. But uh, I ended up tweeting uh, with the help of uh, of my millennial son uh, that uh, the vice president had no power under the Constitution uh, but to uh, accept and count uh, the electoral uh, 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 college votes from the, the, the states as they had been transmitted to the Congress of the United States for counting. Uh, and then I went on to say this is uh, this is not a question of loyalty uh, between uh, the the president and the then vice president, uh, and, and it should never be characterized as such, as the president was characterizing it. That in fact uh, the both men uh, had no have no higher loyalty than to the Constitution of the United States. Uh, that uh, that day was the first uh, of of what has been the the last three plus years for me, in which uh, I, I have felt that I had an obligation uh, to uh, explain to the country what it what had happened on January sixth, and then thereafter explain to the country uh, the constitutional and legal uh, consequences 
for what had happened on January 6th. And um, it's not something I would have wanted to, to do. Uh, that said, it, it, it's been a high honor for me. And, and in fact, the highest honor of my life uh, to uh, uh, to have been um, privileged uh, to, to discuss this, this entire matter with the people of America. Judge, um, what will you what will you do after this Colorado case is decided? What's next for you? Well, uh, I, I pledged my wife that I would retire four years ago, uh, and uh, we've been married uh, well over forty years now, and she's beginning uh, to to be suspicious of my my intentions. So. Uh, I, I'm afraid I will not retire, but I, I would, I would like to retire from uh, this particular uh, matter, and I feel like I, at that point, I, I, I would owe that to my wife and to my family. Well, I do hope that um, you'll come back to Big Ten and that you will continue to be a voice for the United States Constitution and for American democracy, because I think you've made a huge impact on a lot of people and you've crossed party lines as it were, as you've said, um, and uh, you know, don't don't retire all the way, oh, please Judge Ludig. Um, I wanna turn this call back over to Michael and say thank you so much to the Brennan Center and to Michael for um, moderating this call and helping us today. It was absolutely huge. We've put some links in the chat for you um, so you can take a look at what the Brennan Center is all about and what they're doing. Michael, why don't you end the call for us? Thank you so much, Kitty. Thank you, uh, Judge Ludig, uh, for all you do for our country. It's a privilege to be in this fight, the great fight for American democracy alongside you and so many others. Uh, it, 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 we None of us necessarily thought we would have to fight for first principles the way we do, but, but uh, with you in the fight, I think we have no choice but to prevail. And thank you, Kitty, to all of you and Big Tent. Um, we at the Brennan Center are very lucky. We get to work on these issues every day. As you know, so many of the folks on this call are supporters of ours. We are a nonpartisan law and policy institute. We work to strengthen uh, and defend the systems of democracy and justice in this country so they work for all. Um, I want to thank everybody who has supported us. I will note that we are surging in our work. Uh, putting everything on the table, and we hope that folks who support us could consider surging too. Uh, we 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 are entirely funded by our forty thousand uh, supporters, and I'll mention and quite a few of you have been able to join us at the Brennan Legacy Award Dinner, uh, which is a gathering this year in New York on May first, um, and we will be honoring. Uh, uh, Secretary Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary, who is a leader on AI issues in the administration, and will be honoring retired Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor of Ohio and the Ohio Organizing Collaborative. She is the Republican Chief Justice, retired of Ohio, who ruled uh, against gerrymandering. Partisan gerrymandering is done by all parties, um, and the legislature ignored her, and so she decided that her next step would be to be a citizen. She's organized a ballot initiative for nonpartisan redistricting reform, along with this grassroots group. We're honoring them, too. We hope any of you who can join us can join us. It'll, it's actually a great, fun event. And thank you to everybody who's part of this movement. Um, 
we all know there's a an election denier movement. It's pretty scary sometimes, but there's a democracy movement. It's big, it's strong, it's growing. And I hope and think it will be the story of the coming years. Well said, Michael. <laughs> thank you so much, Judge Ludig. A real privilege and an honor to meet you. Michael, thank you so much. Everyone, hope to see you under the tent.